Hello and welcome to another episode of The Voice for American Law Enforcement here on the America Out Loud Network. Welcome, I'm Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant and the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. I'm also the author of A Cop's Life and the soon to be released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. On this show, we talk about all things law enforcement and there's never, there's never a dearth of things to talk about. And of course, I also love to bring a fantastic guest in, which I'm going to do shortly. Uh, but before we even get started, I want to read to you a, an op-ed that I wrote that is as timely now as it was when I wrote it just uh, uh, about a year ago. Uh, it's called Bring Back the Fear. Uh, that, that's a... That's a title that's going to send shivers down the spines of certain police leaders. But here, here it is. When did the police become America's punching bags? I mean that literally as well as figuratively. Was there a defining moment or did our country gradually morph into a society where the authority of law enforcement officers has eroded to the point where even grade school children no longer fear consequences from confrontations with the police. Now, I know that simply using the word fear in a conversation about law enforcement is in and of itself politically incorrect. I mean, after all, if one was to listen to all of the political rhetoric coming from senators, congressmen, governors, mayors, and all assorted others who consider themselves experts in law enforcement and community relationships, the police should work tirelessly and relentlessly to reform themselves into a kinder and gentler culture. Every discussion concerning violence and law enforcement always and inevitably will center around fault. Whose fault? Well, I'll give you just one guess. Of course, it's the fault of the police. So let's take a short walk down memory lane. Remember just a few years ago when everyone from the media to the President of the United States, Barack Obama, were crying out for body-worn cameras to be issued to every police officer in the United States. Why? To protect the public from these mean bullies, the police. The word reform was the rallying cry for politicians, the media, and social justice warriors. So quite literally, millions and millions of dollars have been spent on equipping law enforcement officers across the United States with body-worn cameras. But I wonder if you have noticed this. When was the last time that you heard these demands for body-worn cameras? The answer is probably you haven't. Why? Because the answer is also simple. The reality is that the use of body-worn cameras has revealed that law enforcement officers are acting appropriately, not using force unnecessarily, and have shown that it is actually the police who need to be protected from the public. And once again, I mean this both physically in terms of assaults against them and in the thousands of frivolous and concocted complaints filed against them for everything from excessive force to sexual assault. Yeah, the evidence is quite clear. The vast majority of law enforcement officers in this country do their jobs as they are expected to do. Yet the war against cops continues, not only unabated, but is accelerating. Every single day a law enforcement officer puts on his uniform, 
goes out on patrol, they are quite literally putting their lives on the line. The murder rate against officers continues. Shootings of officers takes place almost daily in this country. And physical assaults have become commonplace. Now, the important question here is why? And I'm going to relate my theory and I'm going to relate my solution. I'm pretty sure that the International Association of Chiefs of Police won't be adopting it. As to my theory of why, because all of the, quote, reforms, unquote, the law enforcement has been called upon to make have been all too successful. All of the mandatory training and de-escalation techniques, sensitivity training, implicit bias, and community relations combined with law enforcement administration's heavy-handed disciplinary processes relating to use of force incidents have sufficiently intimidating working cops into becoming minimally aggressive in order to survive this political environment. Some refer to this as de-policing. And that's an accurate characterization. It is simply a matter of survival, not necessarily physical survival, but political survival. Now, what does this look like? It means less proactive police work. It means fewer car stops looking for criminals. It means fewer pedestrian stops looking for guns, drugs, and fugitives. It means fewer physical encounters. It means getting out of the patrol car less. It means taking fewer risks in this phrase, you'll never get in trouble for the car stop you don't make. In other words, it means the bad guys are winning. When the police are afraid to do their job, not because of the physical dangers, but because of the political dangers, society as a whole becomes a much more hazardous place to be. Now, I told you before that I also had a solution. Everything that I just talked about concerning the factors of deep policing empowers criminality, civil unrest, violence, and injustice. Why? Because when people figure out there are no consequences for their action, the reality is that the ugliness of human nature is unleashed. Robbers find it easier to rob. Thieves find it easier to steal. Drug dealers deal their poison with impunity, and our very society becomes threatened. I believe it is time to bring back the fear. Fear of consequences, first and foremost. And that includes the fear of the police. Now, does that, does that sound harsh? Well, I believe that a little fear is healthy. I think the fear is a deterrent to criminality. I think someone should be fearful of putting their hands on a law enforcement officer. I think that someone should be fearful of pulling a gun on a cop. I think that someone should be fearful of becoming argumentative and disrespectful to a police officer and resisting arrest. I served as a police officer for 34 years, and I'll tell you this. As sure as I'm sitting here, I lived this rule. If you try to hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. And if you try to kill me, I'm going to kill you first. Simple. Those are the rules of the road. It's time for police leadership to stop surrendering to political whims and fantasies. Law enforcement is often messy. Law enforcement is often ugly. And law enforcement is always dangerous. It is the responsibility of political leaders. And it is responsibility of law enforcement leaders to make the playing field as safe as possible for the men and women who serve in our nation's law enforcement agencies.
That means understanding that law enforcement officers will need to use force, including deadly force, to accomplish their mission and safeguard their own lives. And no amount of political correctness should stand in the way of allowing our country's cops to do with they are paid for, serve and protect. And that includes protecting themselves. So that's my point that I wanted to make to you and to this nation. Now, I'm going to bring in my guest for today. He's going to close the show with me. Really interesting guy. Uh, he is a retired detective from Pinal County, Arizona. He uh, is, uh, had, had an amazing career, 21 years on the job as a, uh, as a deputy. And he had one of the toughest jobs I think any cop can imagine. And that is investigating inter, inter, uh, um, internet crimes against children. And I mean, this is, this is a dirty, ugly business. Um, he's written a book called uh, Cyber Creeps, which is on Amazon. And he's got, he's got uh, a point of view that every American should hear. I'm going to bring him onto the show right now. Uh, and uh, he's with me here. Uh, Deputy Sheriff Detective Snyder. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate you having me on. No, I uh, appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, for for the, uh, I want the I want the audience to know that uh, we actually met at, at the National Law Enforcement Survival Summit just about two weeks ago. And we had a great conversation. So let's talk about let's talk about a little bit of your background so the audience can get to know you a little bit, and then we're going to talk about uh, what you did for the majority of your career. Absolutely. So um, I was with Pinal County Sheriff's Office for uh, 21 years uh, at the first part of my career. Um, out, kind of like every cop, I did patrol work uh, working throughout the county. Um, for those who aren't familiar with Pinal County, it's about the size of Connecticut. So our beats are sometimes 700, 800 square miles, and our backup is sometimes 45 minutes out. Um, I went uh, to, uh, I promoted patrol corporal for five years and trained at the academy and then went into investigations and that's kind of went down the path of working child crimes and internet crimes against children. All right, so let's let's define what that is because I think a lot of folks, this is, this is a, a topic that uh, most people are probably unaware of. What, exactly what are internet crimes against children? What constitutes that? Internet Crimes Against Children uh, covers a couple of different facets. Um, one of them is the uh, dissemination of child exploitive materials. So in the common vernacular, it would be child pornography, but we've tried to move away from that kind of uh, terminology because it is dismissive of what it really is. Um, pornography is a concept that people think about Playboy or, or something like that. These are not images of that. This is not uh, voluntary images. This is not consensual acts. These are crime scene photos of children being sexually abused and exploited. And so we're trying to change the terminology so that it adequately reflects what this is. These are images and videos of children being sexually abused and sexually exploited. 
And so we go after those individuals who are creating this material, who are sending this material out on uh, the internet, and for those individuals who are collecting it for their own personal gratification. Um, the other facet that we do is the, uh, the luring of children. So individuals um, that would go online and communicate with children with the hopes of engaging them in, in actual sexual acts, uh, kind of like the Chris Hiketcha Predator stuff. Uh, and we did that through both proactive and reactive uh, investigative means. All right, this is your. You just you just told a whole, a whole, <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff here, that is that that I think most Americans would think is about as sick as it could possibly get. But it's also incredible. I I mean, it, this is a big. This is a very widespread problem, is it not? Absolutely, and it's gotten worse since COVID. Um, prior to COVID, what we saw were numbers from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children um, uh, in the terms of about 200 to 300,000 reports a week. And so- Wait a minute, um, hold on a second. 200 to 300,000 reports a week? Correct. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is the clearinghouse for all electronic service providers in the U.S. So any electronic service provider such as Facebook, uh, Twitter, you name it, um, if, if they find images or videos of what they believe to be children being sexually exploited on their platform, they're required by federal law to report that to the National Center. The National Center then sends out weekly statistics because each one of those reports generates what's called a cyber tip and those cyber tips are then disseminated out to the Internet Crimes Against Children task forces around the country who put it out to law enforcement agencies for investigation. Every week they send out these stats and on average we were looking at 200 to 300,000 cases a week uh, nationally. Um, during COVID, especially at the height of the lockdown, we were receiving or the National Center was receiving over a million tips a week. And wow. the last uh, numbers that I saw um, are still showing those numbers somewhere in the 800,000 to a million a week uh, on average. That is incredible. And I, I mean, uh, it even shocks me. I thought I was I thought I was up on on these topics. Uh, I am. I'm that blows me away. So so the, the, the they're the clearinghouse, the missing and um, endangered children in Washington, D.C. is the clearinghouse. And then they they disseminate to different police agencies around the country that um, that they believe is is in that jurisdiction. Is that correct? So primarily what they do is they send it out to the Internet Crimes Against Children task forces. Uh, there are 61 ICAC task forces around the country. Uh, each one of those typically are embedded either with FBI, HSI or with a state attorney general agency. And then from there, you have all of the other uh, agencies that are affiliate agencies where they have an investigator, but it may not be a full-time job for them. They may have other duties or they may not necessarily be embedded in the task force. And so uh, once the task force gets those, uh, then they would send it out to the affiliate agencies if that's what's needed, or they would keep it within the uh, task force itself. I worked on the um, Arizona Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force for two years, embedded as a task force officer with the FBI there, and we kept a fair amount of them uh, in the Phoenix Valley, but then some of them would be 
uh, down in Tucson or up in Flagstaff. And so we would farm those out to the agencies that were a little bit closer and, and able to deal with those uh, more locally. Okay. So um, now that's the, the, they get the, the exploited children um, in Washington, D.C. They get all these reports from, from Twitter and social media. But that doesn't mean that that um, that police agencies around the country aren't proactively looking for um, these type of offenders as well, right? I mean, that's they they generate the police agencies or law enforcement agencies will generate their own investigations. Is that not correct? That's correct. So the numbers that I'm talking about in the you know hundreds of thousands or millions, those are just the ones that are generating cyber tips through the national center. We in law enforcement are still receiving calls for service from citizens. We're still proactively looking for those types of cases. Uh, and so those numbers are, are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the amount of, of uh, crime that's actually occurring against children uh, nationwide and worldwide, really, because some of those tips end up leading us to suspects or victims internationally. Um, during the course of my 10 years, I ended up doing cases that led to arrests of suspects in eight different countries. So, uh, you know, it, it's such a, a huge issue and it's so global that um, we as law enforcement have to work together, uh, often with agencies across other jurisdictions, to be able to bring justice. All right. You know what? This, this topic is so mind-boggling uh, we can get I, I mean i really want to get into depth on this because this is fascinating and it's also really really disturbing to know the scope of this problem and of course when you're dealing with multiple jurisdictions as as a uh, a county deputy or detective you're this is really this really complicates this type of investigative process does it not Absolutely. Um, we had one case where the victims were in New South Wales, Australia. Uh, Australian authorities found out that the suspect was in Pinal County. And so I had New South Wales police uh, reach out through uh, contacts with the National Center to be able to get me the information. And then we had to start dealing with time zone issues and things like that and communicating back and forth to get all of the evidence to get the information that we needed and then once i found the suspect here um, we did a forensic examination of his devices and found that not only did he have the two victims in australia um, but he had victims in arizona california new york ohio uh, england um, literally all around the country and all around the world that because he had the ability to reach out on social media and meet people from other other jurisdictions, uh, we then had to start coordinating with those other jurisdictions to find the victims, identify them, interview them, get all of the information so that we could eventually prosecute. Okay, let's let's drill down on that case just a little bit because I think it's I think it's a great illustration of uh, of the of the the scope of the issue and also the complications. So. New South Wales, Australia contacts the um, missing endangered children, and, and and that creates a tip. Now they did. Are they the ones that discovered that that the suspect was living in your jurisdiction? So New South Wales was able to send legal uh, documents to the um, social media platform, 
and that was able to get them IP addresses, which then resolved back to Pinal County. Um, they used the National Center for uh, contact information to reach me since I was the, the primary point of contact in Pinal County and then basically sent me an email and said here's what we've got what can you help with and that's when we started communicating sending files back and forth sending information back and forth and that started my investigation here uh, and once I was able to determine exactly who the suspect was or at least where he was uh, we went and served a search warrant on the house and started uh, dealing with the people inside until we figured out who was the the one that was actually committing the acts. Okay, so the New South Wales, did they collect, did they find images uh, of, uh, of children being sexually exploited and then they, they traced it, is that correct? This was actually more of a sextortion case. Um, the suspect here was communicating on social media with the girls in New South Wales he had uh, been able to convince them through some um, extortionate and blackmail means to provide him images of them. Um, they were both uh, 14, 15 years old. And once he had those pictures, he attempted to extort additional images from them. Uh, they reported it to their parents, to the school authorities, things like that. And that's what generated it. Once we found him, we found out that he had not only extorted images from children as young as nine, um, but also was collecting those images and other images he was finding online uh, to build up his collection of uh, child exploitive materials. Wow, this is as, as insidious as it could possibly get. Now, there's a lot of lessons here, if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, that these young girls, 14 and 15, somehow utilize social media to put themselves into a compromised situation. Is that correct? That's correct. And I wouldn't want to say that it was their fault. I'm, I, I would never blame a victim. But unfortunately, the uh, behaviors that a lot of teens are engaging in put them at risk. And while they may not necessarily do it with um, the knowledge that it's putting them at that, that risk, uh, it certainly does. Um, I saw a statistic earlier this morning that one in five teenagers has, in, has uh, distributed uh, sexual images of themselves to somebody and one in three have received sexual images from somebody. And the problem is they just never know who that's going to go to. They don't always know who's on the other line, other end of that line. And even if they know who that person is on the other end, they can't control what happens to it. So they may send that picture to what they believe to be their boyfriend or girlfriend, something like that. And then the next thing you know, that person has disseminated it out to two, three, a dozen, a hundred people, or they've posted it online. And at that point, you can't ever get it back. It's the the damage is done. So when, in this particular case, you did a search warrant, you got all his devices, and was it all, um, did you, were the charges all possession and distribution of child pornography? Is that what the, what the basic crux was? Um, we actually have a sextortion law here in Arizona. Uh, it's fairly new, but we were able to utilize that along with the possession of the child exploitive images to enhance some of the sentencing on it so that we could hold him accountable for the fact that uh, he had blackmailed these girls to get those images wow. uh, that they weren't shared freely.
And what kind of sentence did he receive? Because he was fairly young himself, uh, some of the incidents took place before his 18th birthday. Some of them took place after. Uh, he ended up with a fairly light sentence. He got, uh, I believe it was seven years in the Department of Corrections. Uh, and then he's on lifetime probation and lifetime sex offender registration. So, uh, wow. So he was, he was young. He had developed this, 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 this horrendous criminal activity, even when he was, he was young himself. That's correct. And that's what we're seeing is that, uh, it, it spans all ages. We've had suspects that were in their thirties and forties. We've had suspects as young as 15, um, doing these kinds of things and, and extorting these images from kids. Um, the, the one, I guess positive, if you can pull one from this particular case was some of what he had collected um, helped us locate and identify an additional offender down in Mexico who was even more prolific. Uh, he had uh, over a hundred victims. Uh, I believe about 80 of them have been identified to date and they're from around the world. And because he had some of those files in his devices, um, we were able to use that information to help a larger uh, Homeland Security investigation uh, that was able to to help those victims and, and catch that that offender as well. When you're involved in an investigation like this, um, I mean, it comes from different, you know, sometimes I, I think you probably uh, get uh, a tip from a, a citizen that says, hey, I suspect this. How do you how do you investigate um, an individual who is basically sitting in their own home, utilizing their devices, and and then I mean, are they just are, are they disseminating this, uh, or selling it, or are they trading it? How how does that work? For the most part, they're trading it. Um, there is some sale of some of this stuff uh, that occurs on primarily the dark web, but there's so much of it available for free that the the individual market for it is uh, a little bit more specific in what what people are paying for. But essentially what you have are these individuals who go online, find like-minded individuals, and then start trading it. Um, at one point, there was one social media platform that uh, I became familiar with, and there were whole chat rooms of 50 people or more, and all they did was sit in there and trade images back and forth. And because wow. trading one image at a time takes a while, uh, oftentimes what they would do is trade a link to a, a cloud storage site, like a Dropbox or a Megalink, something like that. And there could be hundreds, even thousands of images within that, uh, drop, within that cloud account and the, the links they would just trade back and forth to make sure that they were spreading as much imagery as they could to as many people as they could. All right, let's, let's go away from the, from the uh, pornographic side of this. Let's go to the other side where um, I think it's even more insidious, and that is trying to lure uh, minors into, into uh, sex acts. Um, that's also part of what ICAT does, correct? 
Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Sheriff Lamb likes to say that I was the best 14-year-old girl in the county. Uh, and he, he unfortunately doesn't add a lot of context to that, so it's, I, I have to preface it with uh, I, I worked undercover online um, in a couple of different roles. Uh, sometimes I would be a kid putting myself out there to the, the creeps that were out there and trying to let them exploit me before they found a real kid. Um, that way we could uh, you know, kind of act as a buffer other times I would um, act as one of the creeps and, uh, you know, discuss with the other bad guys what they were doing, how they were doing it, let them make admissions, let them send me some images. That way we could uh, take them off as well. Um, but a lot of it is going online and seeing where the kids are at, seeing where the creeps are trying to find them, and then finding a way to... Uh, capture them to be able to get their information. Well, it described to me a case that, I mean, so somehow you get connected with a cyber creep, someone who is trying to entice what they think is a 14 year old girl into a sexual experience. How does that, um, how does that investigation take place? And how do you eventually um, culminate that investigation? So some of them um, actually are disturbingly fast. I had uh, one guy that I put a post on a social media site that just said that I was bored. It was as simple as that. I just said, so bored. Um, this guy responded back and indicated that he had some ideas for what could cure my boredom. And within about an hour, he had decided that he wanted to drive from a neighboring city uh, over to the city that I said I was in uh, with the promises of showing up to engage in sexual acts with what he thought was a 14-year-old girl. Um, he sent nude images of himself to try and entice the situation. He uh, tried to uh, stop and get me a, uh, bought me a soda and stuff like that to sweeten the deal, so to speak, and then showed up. And when he showed up at the agreed upon meet point, um, we had a team waiting for him and, and arrested him. Uh, once we went through the rest of his devices, we found that he had actually engaged in similar behavior with two live victims and had a cache of uh, child exploited materials on his devices as well. Um, so he had, so he had actually met he had actually met with two young girls and committed the sexual acts. Is that correct? He had attempted to um, in one of the cases the girl got cold feet they had traded images back and forth they discussed it but they didn't actually get an opportunity to meet uh the other girl would not um provide any specific information as to whether they met or not um it's suspected based upon the chats that we have but uh she was not willing to provide any uh any additional evidence to support it okay let I want you to I want you to illustrate this with with a story. Um, tell me about the uh, what, one of the cases that really had a lasting effect on you. Um, you know, one of those that that you always take with you when you're thinking about this type of horrendous criminal activity. Give me that story. Um, Probably one that, that really sticks in my mind the most. Um, I was in a chat room and basically all it was was a bunch of guys trading images back and forth um, and, and sending their links and things like that. And in that particular room, I was 
pretending to be an adult. I was pretending to be one of the bad guys and just kind of lurking to see who was trading what. Um, a user came into the room and he sent a particular video um, that the only thing I can say is it gave me nightmares. Um, wow. It was the most horrific um, example of BDSM child exploitation I had ever seen. Uh, it was actually created by a guy named Peter Scully, who was caught in the Philippines um, doing essentially child snuff films that one of his victims they found buried under the uh, foundation of the house. Several others had to be um, medically treated for the severity of their injuries. But this guy traded one of those videos and it was so horrific. The other perverts in the room were like, whoa, dude, that's too much. And they made him stop. Um, wow. That put a pretty big red flag for me that this was the this was the next target and needed to be taken down as quickly as possible. Uh, he ended up being located in Ohio. And when the Ohio authorities uh, served the search warrant on his house, not only did they get him, um, but as part of the interview, he goes, hey, uh, not for nothing, you might uh, you might talk to my uh, my roommate, too. He's kind of into the same thing. And so they popped a second warrant and found out that his roommate was doing the exact same thing. Um, but the just the 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 effect that that video had on me, I had nightmares for probably two years after that um, because it would it would re-enter my brain at times and things like that. And it wasn't until uh, I went to the Dallas Crimes Against Children's Conference several years later and heard that Peter Scully had been captured and found out kind of the the after part of that particular situation that it was it created some closure for me and I was able to kind of process that and and get it out of my head. You know, it, it, hearing you speak, it 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 really truly uh, brings forth something that that I would not have thought of. And that is, you know, with with most criminal investigations, you wind up putting your hands on the bad guy, putting the cuffs on him and taking him to jail. This is not the same situation here because you're dealing with so many different jurisdictions, literally even, even you know, different uh, nations involved here. So, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain, you know, satisfaction that takes place when you throw the cuffs on somebody and you put, and you personally walk him into sticking behind bars. But a lot of this, you're not getting the chance to do that, are you? Right. And especially in those situations where we may have images of a child that we can't identify uh, and just ha always having that question in the back of your mind, have they been rescued? Are they still being abused? It ha has something been done to be able to protect that child? Um, you know, yeah, there's satisfaction in taking the bad guy away. But uh, the bigger satisfaction was knowing that when we did those rescues, we had been able to affect that child's life and, and take them out of that environment. And I, I know of at least two dozen kids that I can name that, that I have, you know, documentation of that we rescued. There's countless others that I, I don't know the exact person, but I'm sure that by taking that offender away, that child was rescued. Uh, but it's that not knowing and not being able to get that closure sometimes that kind of uh, sticks with you even after the cases are done.
All right, tell me about one of the rescues that, that you were involved in. We got a cyber tip um, of a individual that was, uh, the, the images that were being traded demonstrated that uh, a young child, she was uh, approximately three years old, was being sexually abused, and the images of that abuse were being traded with a guy in Australia. Um, the information from the National Center indicated that that suspect was in my area, and so we started working it up as a priority one call, basically, a, you know, we need to be out there right now. Um, when we got to the residence, well, let me back up. In images that are taken with digital devices, whether it's a cell phone or a digital camera or whatever, um, there's something called metadata. And that's all of the background information that's collected by the device when it's when the photo's taken. So shutter speed, things like that. But a lot of them now, especially on, on cell phones, collect the latitude and longitude of where that image was taken as well. Oh, really? So in this case, it was very helpful because the bad guy was taking the pictures at his house and it was dropping a pin on a Google map for us to be able to go straight to his house. The downside of that is all of these kids who are taking pictures of themselves in their bathroom, in their bedroom, wherever, and sending them out online, some of that same information is available to the bad guys to lead them straight to that kid's door. Oh, yeah, sure. So in this case, it worked to our advantage that it put a, a pin on the, the suspect's house, and so we were able to go out to that house. Uh, we executed a search warrant. This guy was um, a, a scumbag of the first order. Uh, not only was he sexually abusing the uh, three-year-old, but he had also been abusing the 11-year-old for a period of about three years uh, and plying her with drugs and things like that to keep her docile. Um, and the mother that lived in the house was aware and complicit in some of the sexual abuse. Oh, my God. Um, this guy tried to blame his 16-year-old son for the sexual abuse of the younger child. And when we found the information that the mom was complicit, um, we arrested her also. Uh, needless to say, we, we arrested him that night. We had all of the images. We had the information from his devices that corroborated it. We had the emails that he was sending to Australia um, in an attempt to trade the images he was producing for additional images from other people around the world. And that information was sent to Australia. They were able to locate and identify that guy and take down the ring that he was involved in. Um, but we also were able to take that that young girl, that three-year-old, and get her away from the abuse. The 11-year-old was taken away from the abuse. She now has the opportunity to improve the rest of her life um, without having to be continually sexually abused by this guy. Wow. Uh, and, and especially with, <laughs> with a mom that knew that it was going on and did nothing to protect her kids. That's about as sick... You know, that's, but that's what an incredible story that is. And, and the fact that, you know, uh, you were able to, to literally save those children from, from that type of torture. That is, that's a, that's a hell of a story, man. But we need to take a quick break for, uh, for, uh, I want to talk about a couple of the products that, um, that uh, help make this show happen and also help law enforcement officers across this country.
loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at CofixRx.com. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Why we're talking about cyber, there is a company called OfficerPrivacy.com. Uh, Pete James, who uh, created this company, uh, was a uh, police officer who discovered how easy it is to dox people, especially police officers, and locate where they live, their cars, and all kinds of personal information. And in this in th- this day and age, um, you know the the cyber creeps like like we're talking about here. Um, there's many many enemies of law enforcement officers, and they are using the internet to harass police. So uh, officerprivacy.com, what they do is they scrub most of that information away from the internet. They actually go in, they do a complete search, and then they remove the ability to use the internet to dox, to locate. And I personally, I think that every police officer in America needs this, this product. Um, it's not expensive. They do amazing work. They're, 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 um, they're really playing a role here. So t- check out officerprivacy.com. Um, I had the chance to meet Pete at the, at the National Law Enforcement Survival Summit where we were talking about every aspect about surviving a law enforcement career. And this is, this is part of it. So if you're law enforcement or have been law enforcement, check this out, officerprivacy.com. And uh, uh, I-, I tell you right now, this is something that you really, really need to take a look at. 
One of the other aspects that, you know, that, that I'm involved in, of course, the Wounded Blue is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. If you're a law enforcement officer and you've been injured physically, psychologically, emotionally, we exist to help you. It is a nonprofit, costs you nothing, completely confidential. We are a resource for every cop in America and every police agency in America. Very often, an agency will contact us and say, we don't have the resources for this. Can you, can you provide some peer support for, for an officer who's struggling? And my entire team is made up of cops who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, face serious trauma, and they continue to serve in amazing ways. So go to our website, thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org. If you can support this organization, I would truly appreciate. If you can even do $10 a month, just go onto the donate button and follow the prompts. Do 10 bucks a month. We really need the support. That's, that is, it's, a, it's an unfortunate reality that trying to raise money for a law enforcement charity, even one as important as this, is a struggle. So please. Now, in addition, uh, there, is, there is a product out there that I want to tell you about. And it is all about, like I said, we're all about survival of a career. There's an incredible new product out there called Thin Blue Line Defend. ThinBlueLineDefend.com. Wow. When, and I've been, I've been walking alongside the individual, Doug Parker, who created this. Uh, Doug was a uh, high-ranking Georgia Bureau of Investigation detective, investigator who investigated officer-involved shootings and, uh, you know, major uses of force. And he found from his experience that if, uh, if there was a way to document from the beginning of the, from the beginning of the uh, use of force, then it would provide a major defense towards uh, any actions against these officers. He created it. He created this incredible app. Go to thinbluelinedefend.com, thinbluelinedefend.com. Check this out. It's, it's really inexpensive. I, once again, you know, when I, when I look at the products, I personally bet them. And I and the the people who created these products uh, are all you know former law enforcement officers who who know the issues and want to do something about them. So um, I want to get back, bring my guest back in. Randy, you still there? I'm still here. Okay. Um, you have a book. Tell us about the book. So. Uh... Over the course of my career, I had some pretty interesting cases. I had some interesting characters that I dealt with. Um, one of the guys that I arrested uh, had a diaper fetish, which was just bizarre on a whole new level. Uh, and so <laughs> toward the end of my career, I had people talking about, man, you really ought to write a book about all the crazy things that you've seen and, and the people that you've dealt with. And uh, so after I retired, I thought, yeah, why not? Um, and so I sat down and wrote Cyber Creeps to educate the public about what kinds of people there are online and who these guys are that are out there um, trying to meet children to sexually abuse and exploit them. And I say guys, I've actually had a couple of cases with females involved uh, that, that were the suspects, but uh, by and large it's men. And 
just how prevalent this is so that parents can take an active role in protecting their children, monitoring their social media use, watching their devices, seeing who their friends are, having those tough conversations. Uh, you know, when we were growing up, the worst conversation they had to worry about uh, was the birds and the bees. And, you know, maybe don't don't take candy from the guy in the white panel van. And now, uh, you know, you have to worry about your kids being exploited by people on the other side of the world. And so I think more parents need to be aware of that. They need to be involved with it. And hopefully some of the cases that I dealt with and, and the experiences that I had can educate parents into being more proactive and, and being more protective of their their kids. And the book is available, it's called Cyber Creeps, and it's available on Amazon, is that correct? That's correct. Um, it's available in both a Kindle format and a paperback format. And so uh, I would urge anybody that has kids, grandkids, it knows kids that are online, things like that, to go out and read it and look at what's out there because some of the suspects that I talk about were uh, elementary school principals and school bus drivers and you know individuals that have direct access to our kids that are also online going out trying to abuse them and exploit them. And so we, we really need to raise the level of awareness in parents instead of just having them hand an electronic device off to their kids and letting the iPad be the babysitter. Wow, you, you have, um... You've been talking about a really, really disturbing topic, and I'm really happy that you wrote this book. This is a book. Sounds to me like this is this is required reading for parents uh, because the 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 um, the threats are so real. I guess nobody really wants to think that these that these animals exist out there, but they are. Um, I mean, the the scope of the problem is so immense that it's really, really frightening. And it's, I guess this is a very harsh reality that the parents have to face. Absolutely, and you know, having those conversations with kids about making sure that they're being safe online is, is mandatory. I mean, if, if you're going to let your child go out and play at the park, you're gonna tell them to be aware of strangers. If you're gonna let them go to the mall or the movies, you're gonna teach them how to be safe around other people. Why are we not doing the same thing when you're giving them an, a, a tool that can access anonymous people from all around the world? And th there's just so much of it that people don't understand. I, I think it, it, we need to get the word out there. Um, one of the things that I recommend is that parents go onto the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website, where there are uh, resources for how to talk to kids about internet safety. There are resources about sextortion and how prevalent it is and what you can do to try and prevent your kid from uh, you know, ending up in those situations. There's even video games on there for kids to play that are age appropriate so that kids can learn this stuff without it seeming like a lecture from mom and dad. It's something fun that they can do that also teaches them how to be safe because we're all you know, global neighbors at this point, and you got to be as aware of who's in your global neighborhood as you are in your physical neighborhood. Really well said. Really well said. Um, I want to take another moment here and talk about another product that you know, as I I always try and and emphasize, 
the Wounded Blue exist to work with police officers who are injured and disabled across the country. But if we can stop them from getting injured or disabled, we want to, we want to play a role in that as well. That's why we had the National Law Enforcement Survival Summit, which was incredibly, I mean, Randy, you were there. Was it, was it an amazing training experience? Oh, it was, it was eye-opening. Uh, in, in so many ways, it, it helped me reflect on some of the um, issues that I've had from, you know, being exposed to all of this. It's brought back a lot of things that I could bring back to my family and talk to my wife about and be able to uh, bring that help back. And it's really given me a lot of new ways to um, deal with, you know, what we have to deal with as cops every day, not just uh, on the road, but in investigations and, and throughout a, an entire career. And uh, I, I wish every officer could go to something like that or to your seminar uh, or your summit to be able to better protect themselves and make it through their careers. And, and for every officer who's listening to this, or if you know an officer, love an officer, um, direct them to thewoundedblue.org because we are already in planning for the third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit, which will be held in Las Vegas next October. Once again, the, the, the most incredible speakers and presenters in the country, every aspect about surviving a law enforcement career. I wanna talk about a product that is that I am just amazed by, and we showed it at the National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. The inventor of this product was there. It's a company called Armor Research Company. Ken Hall is the, is the, uh, the principal of this. He and I have become very good friends because I know that he is so involved in wanting to protect law enforcement. And he has created something that should be in every police car in America. I'm gonna show it to you in a minute. But just to set the stage, use of shields, ballistic shields, has been in effect for many years. The problem with them is they're generally speaking only in, in tactical units or in supervisors' cars. So if a cop needs it, they gotta call a supervisor and it's, it's you know, it, it, it kind of defeats the purpose. Well, now there's been a personal shield invented that can take a rifle round and one of the problems with the with the products that are out there is they're so heavy. You know, they're third, sometimes 25, 30 pounds. Well, Ken Hall and Armor Research Company has developed, I'm gonna show it to you. It's unbelievable. I'm holding it up with two fingers. This, this shield, this shield can take a AK-47 round and save that officer's life. This is, this should be in every every police car in America. It's seven and a half pounds. And you, you see the size of it. They make a larger one that's 10 pounds. Um, and it is, it, it literally is a life-saving tool. And the Armor Research people are so committed to helping law enforcement that not only are they, they just, this just came out of the market. Ken Hall, has this patented material that he created that will take those rounds and, and absorb them so that it saves lives, saves police lives. But he also loves the wounded blue and what we stand for. And so he's giving 
10% of all sales to the wounded blue. So if you're a law enforcement officer, contact me personally, Randy at thewoundedblue.org. It's Randy at thewoundedblue.org. I will introduce you to Armor Research Company. If you're a police chief, if you're a, a, a leader, contact me. You've got to do this for your cops. And you know that I am, I am absolutely dedicated. I've dedicated my life to law enforcement. Of all the tools that I've seen, this one I know is a lifesaver. So contact me, Randy, the Wounded Blue. .org, and I will introduce you to the people over at Armor Research Company. Um, Randy, we're about running out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me here at the Voice for American Law Enforcement. I, I literally did not get into any news stories at all because I wanted to devote the time. Once, once you were engaged in this conversation with me, I saw how important this topic truly is. So we're dedicating this entire show to your, your uh, abilities and what you have done historically to help these exploited children. So I want to thank you for being here. The book Cyber Creeps is on Amazon.com. Thanks for joining me today here. I really appreciate you being here, Randy. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate it. All right. As we wrap up this show, um, you can find me on uh, Randy at thewoundedblue.org. You can contact me directly. Facebook, uh, The Voice for American Law Enforcement. And once again, I really, truly ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. If you're a law enforcement officer and you, you're struggling, contact us. That's what we're here for. We are your brothers and sisters. We are completely confidential and we can help. And the other thing I'd like... If you can donate to the Wounded Blue, I can't think of a more worthy cause, quite honestly. So that's it for this week. I'm Randy Sutton. I'm your host on AmericaOutloud.com, heard on iHeartRadio and all the, uh, all the platforms. Once again, thanks for joining me here at The Voice for American Law Enforcement.